Noah is the father of three adult sons and, despite living in landlocked Mesopotamia, he is instructed to build a boat. With his limited workforce, he constructs a vessel so huge that its scale is not surpassed until Brunel's Great Eastern is launched in 1858. The vessel needs to be large enough to accommodate Noah, his sons and everyone's wives for over a year, as well as having enough space to store two of every kind of animal currently on the earth. According to the Genesis account, the Ark is made from an unidentified type of wood referred to as gopher and is lined with a resinous substance called pitch. The ship has three decks and measures 450 feet long, 50 feet wide and 45 feet high, making it almost twice as long as a Boeing 747. It's clearly waterproof and seaworthy and some Bible historians believe that it might even have been circular. That said, it manages to stay afloat without major mishap until the floodwaters recede some five months after it first starts to rain. Noah's willingness to build a boat hundreds of miles from any ocean looks like madness. But it is actually the first example in the book of a concept which the Bible describes as faith. This can be seen as an unswerving conviction that God is real and that following his instructions will lead to some kind of positive outcome. Finally, God appears to have found a genuine follower among Earth's pagan people, and the hope of humanity rests on the shoulders of him and his family. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, Episode 3, A Ship on the Mountain. Before we begin, I refer to the New International Version UK edition of the Bible, and I'm neither a priest nor a theologian. I'm an advertising creative director, fascinated with how this book still impacts the culture some 1800 years after it was finally completed. Also, this is the Bible minus the religion, so if you're looking for something more spiritual or reverential, you may need to go elsewhere. book of Genesis, God promises to maintain a relationship with Noah. He orders him to board the ship with his wife, sons and their wives to avoid the impending disaster. Their fellow passengers are to be two of every living creature, a male and female from each species, and they are to bring along sufficient food to keep their precious cargo alive. Noah is then given more detail on the animals he is to take aboard. These include seven pairs of every clean animal, one pair of every unclean animal, and seven pairs of every species of bird. Bible experts believe that this might be a cheeky addition to the story by a later writer. Noah is not a Jew, and so the concept of clean and unclean animals doesn't officially exist. The story continues with an announcement from God that, in a week's time, he will send 40 days and nights of rain. The resulting flood will wipe out animal life from the surface of the earth. Miraculously, the wildlife comes to Noah, saving him the task of collecting it himself. Then, despite being over 600 years old, he boards the boat that will be home for him and his family for the next year. True to the divine promise, rain begins to fall. 
as the water levels rise and the rest of humanity swims for it, Noah and his family drift off in their giant floating zoo. Interestingly, the ark has no sails and no rudder. Navigation is left to God. It is designed simply to float until the floodwaters retreat. The flood is vast. According to the Bible, the springs of the deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven are opened. It rains non-stop for 40 days and nights and the floodwaters are so deep that the highest mountain is still around 20 feet below the surface. The flood kills every living creature that needs dry land to survive. Only Noah and his family make it out alive. The rain may eventually stop, but the earth remains submerged. God sends a wind that drives the flood back and the waters start to recede. Finally, after 150 days, the ark is beached on top of a range of peaks, which the Bible identifies as the mountains of Ararat. Mount Ararat itself is in eastern Turkey, but given the mountainous area along the border that Turkey shares with Armenia, Iran and Azerbaijan, the ark's final resting place could be in any of these countries. At 17,000 feet, Mount Ararat is a dormant volcano. In nearby Armenia, it is still revered as a holy mountain, where it appears on postage stamps, banknotes and the country's coat of arms. There have been numerous excavations over the years, but so far, nothing has been recovered to suggest that there are any remains of a wooden boat on its summit. Back in the story, the ground below the peak remains covered in water. After 40 days, Noah opens one of the windows in his boat and sends out a raven to find dry land. After repeated attempts, the mission remains unsuccessful and so Noah sends a dove, which also returns to the safety of the boat. A week later, the bird is dispatched again and arrives home with an olive branch in its beak. One week on, it fails to return at all, suggesting that it has found dry ground to make its home. After a whole month has passed, the floodwaters have receded enough for Noah to pull off the coverings of the ark. Two months later, more than a year after the first rains fell, the earth is dry again. God orders Noah and his family to disembark, release their living cargo and begin the process of recolonising the planet. The flood itself is the subject of huge conjecture. Some say that it's a Mesopotamian fairy tale adopted by the Hebrews. Others quote a similar episode in the Babylonian Epic of Gilgamesh and claim that these two separate accounts must suggest some major flooding event in the region. Some archaeologists believe that a cataclysmic flood occurred when meltwater from the last ice age in around 10,000 BC breached the land bridge of the Bosphorus. The resulting dam burst will have filled a vast area of low-lying land that is now the Black Sea. Tantalisingly, despite much underwater exploration, some of it by Titanic hunter Robert Ballard, no officially recognised relics of farming or other habitation have been discovered on the seabed. As for how thousands of pairs of animals, both predators and prey, cohabited for so long on a ship, the easy answer is that it was a miraculous event. 
This is the obvious first answer to any of the more out-of-the-ordinary occurrences in the Bible, and one which satisfies many Christians who believe the flood was a factual event. Creationists, on the other hand, believe that the flood was a global event rather than merely a Near Eastern one, and have a number of explanations as to how the animals survived their year-long captivity. One is that extra animals were brought on board for the carnivores to eat, and that with three spacious decks, there was plenty of room to store compressed hay for all the others. Another theory is that the animals went into hibernation and ate very little during their voyage. One day, an eccentric billionaire might decide to recreate the ark for real and prove once and for all if such a vessel might actually have succeeded. Now safely back on terra firma, Noah's first move is to build an altar in honour of the god who he believes has rescued him. This altar is the first to be mentioned in the Bible and will have been a rough mound of stones on which Noah sacrifices some of the animals which God considers clean. Again, how Noah identifies these is uncertain. The assumption is that before the age of Moses and the official law-giving on Mount Sinai, no animals are considered unclean. The aroma from the fire is described as pleasing. In return for Noah's loyalty, God vows never to destroy his handiwork again, promising a continuous cycle of seasons, harvests, days and nights. He promises to bless Noah and his family, Bible speak for looking favourably on them, and encourages them to fill the earth with their descendants. In what is a kind of creation 2.0, God puts Noah in charge of all land animals, birds and marine life, and he and his family can eat whatever they like. But, in an early nod to the Jewish food laws handed out centuries later, eating blood is forbidden. It appears that, to God, human life is sacrosanct, and he tells Noah that he will be keeping accounts. This not only suggests that people are to respect each other's right to remain alive, but that animals are to be killed humanely. The draining of the blood before eating suggests that while the blood remains in the beast, so does life and eating anything while it is alive is barbaric. To emphasise the point that indiscriminate killing is not on the agenda, God warns that anyone who sheds human blood will themselves be killed. In the story, God makes an official agreement with Noah, his family and all the animal life that he has brought with him in the ark. This is the first of several official agreements that God makes between himself and the people who believe in him and which are known as covenants. A rainbow appears in the sky and Noah is told that whenever he sees a rainbow it should be a reminder that God will not attempt to destroy his people a second time. The contract is permanent, he says, and life on earth will never again be threatened by a flood. Unhappy with creation mark one, God has wiped out humanity, leaving Noah's family alone to reboot life on Earth. But will they make a good fist of it, or will Earth's new custodians descend into the same moral abyss as their predecessors? It's a huge responsibility for the eight humans left on the planet. Noah's three sons are called Shem, Ham and Japheth. They and their wives have accompanied Noah on the ark, 
and it is these three couples who are to produce the children who will repopulate the planet. Surprisingly, given the responsibility placed in their laps, the three women are not named. At the time the Bible is written, women are very much subservient to men. Given this, it is remarkable that so many of the Bible's heroes are women, and two of its 66 books, Ruth and Esther, are named after the women who feature in them. As the Earth's new caretaker, Noah plants a vineyard and appears to enjoy getting high on his own supply. In an awkward moment, he is caught drunk and naked in his tent by his son Ham. Ham is somewhat indiscreet about the experience, crowing to his brothers who hurry in to cover their father up. Unlike Ham, they walk into the tent backwards to spare Noah's blushes. This episode will haunt Ham's family terribly. When Noah learns how his son behaved, he is furious. He curses Ham's own son Canaan, promising that he will be like the lowliest slave to his brothers. Conversely, Noah praises Shem and Japheth, asking God to extend their territory while Ham acts as their slave. Now a byword for anyone with Jewish blood, the original Semites are traditionally seen as descendants of Shem. Most modern Jews can trace their genetic ancestry to the area of the Middle East known as the Fertile Crescent. This covers Iraq, Palestine, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, Cyprus and parts of Iran and Turkey. Semite is not really a word that is heard much today, although most people are familiar with the term anti-Semitism, meaning a prejudice against Jews. Also, the Semitic languages, which include Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic and Maltese, are still spoken by over 300 million people. His work complete, Noah dies aged 950, the last of the pre-flood megacentenarians, and Genesis lists the nations that spring from his three sons. While Shem is the father of the people who will eventually become the Jews, his brother Japheth is the ancestor of the apocalyptical king Magog, who we'll learn more about later. However, the Bible turns its attention to one of Ham's sons, who proves to be a great hunter. As with all mighty people, a legend quickly builds up around him. Not only is Nimrod a powerful warrior and huntsman, the Bible mentions four towns, including the city of Babel, that form the beginnings of his realm. This suggests that he might also be a king. Some believe that his kingdom might actually be Babylon. Readers are told that Nimrod later moves on to Assyria, where he builds Nineveh, the great city, as well as three more towns. After just a few short verses, Nimrod leaves the Bible and the legends take over. The first is that he is a proud and ambitious ruler who presides over the gigantic construction project known as the Tower of Babel. His plan is to build it so high that no future flood can drown it. God has no time for show-offs and the tower is never completed. Another legend is that Nimrod refuses to give up trying to beat God and commandeers a chariot powered by birds to fly to heaven. Some Jewish and Islamic legends suggest that Abraham and Nimrod meet and have a fight, which is why Abraham runs off in search of a new and safer home. 
Others believe that Nimrod becomes invincible after inheriting Adam and Eve's clothes from his grandfather and that he has his head chopped off by Jacob's brother, another formidable hunter called Esau. Hungarians believe that Nimrod's sons Hunor and Magor get lost on a hunting party, kidnap some local girls and found the tribes of the Huns and Magyars. It's a brief mention in the Bible that has led to a number of colourful and entertaining myths. In the city believed to have been built by Nimrod, one particular showpiece epitomises the arrogance of its builders. The structure is seen as a triumph of man rather than a sign of the creative power given to them by God. The Tower of Babel is the world's first vanity building project where men use construction techniques to put on a show of how clever and skilled they are. The plan is for Babel to be a vast metropolis with a tower so tall that it touches heaven. The bricks are handmade and baked from clay rather than cut from stone, another opportunity for men to show off their creativity and engineering prowess. Babel's tower would most probably have been a stepped, square-based pyramid called a ziggurat. At the time that construction begins on the plain of Shinar in present-day Iraq, everyone speaks the same language, a convenience which no doubt helps make the building process more efficient. However, it appears that God sees Babel as an act of arrogance. The people are not honouring him, but are trying to make a name for themselves instead. They are also going against the instructions which he gave Noah to settle the whole earth, believing that a giant self-contained city is enough to protect them from the plan which God has for them. According to the Genesis account, God's way of interrupting the building work is highly creative in its own way. He confuses their language so that the builders can no longer understand one another, bringing construction to an abrupt halt. God then follows through by scattering the inhabitants of Babel all over the earth anyway. Many Jews, Christians and Muslims believe that this is the reason why there are now so many different languages spoken throughout the world. After so much disappointment with the human side of creation, it appears that God is keen to fill the world with good people, a commodity which thus far has been in short supply. It is then that he spots a Mesopotamian farmer who is descended from Shem and shares his future plans with him. The man is an unlikely choice. He and his wife are well into their middle age and have no children. Yet, according to the book of Genesis, this is the couple whose children will outnumber the grains of sand on the shore and the stars in the night sky. Their story is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, for Sleeping Dog, with music by Michael Old, and additional production by Johnny Hawkins. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com. <laughs>